there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, offering hands-free inspiration while you're making your next handmade thing. They offer amazing titles in audiobook form for any time that you're crafting like we do, or cleaning, working, driving, whenever you would love to be digging into a good book but can't necessarily do it with your own eyes, they have got your back. And right now, on their special crafters page where they've got a whole bunch of titles compiled especially for us, they're also offering a free download of a book written by a fellow maker whose name is Johanna Bosford. The book is called Ivy and Inky the Butterfly, and it is a magical tale that is really good for all ages. So this is a great one to download and listen to in the car with the kiddos as well. So to get this book for free, just go to tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter, download it, and while you're there, check out all of their other great titles. This week on the show, my guest is Robert Maher, an artist, designer, and host of the Crafted Channel on YouTube. Recently, he's also become even more well-known as a contestant on the show Making It, hosted by Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. I met Robert earlier this year at a California creative conference called Craftcation, where we were both judges, along with paper craft designer Amy Tangerine, for kind of a tongue-in-cheek speed craft competition. We have since become friends. I found him to be soft-spoken, kind, and funny, and I, I just immediately liked him. During this conversation, we talked about his Midwestern upbringing, his life in Los Angeles, and his journey from art appraiser to designer to on-screen personality. He also gave me some inside scoop on what it was like behind the scenes of the NBC show making it. So, without further ado, let's meet him now. Robert Maher, thank you so much for being on Craftish. It's so nice to have you here, friend. Vicki, it's really nice to be here. Thanks for hosting me. I, well, I mean, you're pretty much a crafty superstar. Well, you've been a crafty superstar, but now, like, now that NBC <laughs> got their their hooks into you, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that I got the interview. I- <laughs> I am so hard to book these days, I can't tell you. <laughs> Well, so I mean, we laugh, but honestly, I mean, it's been so remarkable to watch this experience. And it's something that I want to, I obviously want to talk a ton about, but but before we dive into um, making it, I, I want to talk a little bit about the making of you as a creative type. Um, I mean, sure. not, not literally how you were made. That's not, that's, that's not that kind of show. I know what you mean. <laughs> okay. Just thought I'd clarify because... <laughs> We're not face-to-face, I don't know. Um, You grew up in the Midwest, correct? I did. I grew up in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Were you, were your family, were your parents creative? Were they professional artists or crafters? It is a mystery to my entire family how I have any arts and crafts ability because it doesn't come from my parents um i had one great auntie who was um a talented quilter and sewer and was always doing some project for the church bazaar kind of thing and i loved that um but she really you know outside of school she was kind of my only crafty influence and i only saw her a handful of times a year so yeah so what what did your parents do 
Uh, my mom was a nurse, and my dad was uh, an electrical engineer. So as you were, I'm assuming that from minute one, you were creative. Was that was that nurtured? Uh, it definitely was nurtured, yeah. I mean, I was always one of those kids that I would much rather um, stay inside and make sun catcher kits or weave potholders on a loom than run around in the backyard. <laughs> and thankfully, you know, my, my parents sort of just let me run with it. Um, I also, I spent a tremendous amount of time in the library as a kid and watching uh, public television. <laughs> and so I think that I found, you know, I, I found craft books that I loved and devoured. You know, the, the child craft encyclopedia was like my Bible when I was a kid. And I memorized that whole make and do volume, mm. um, you know, and then a lot of time with, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street and all that kind of good stuff, which, you know, definitely sort of uh, nurtured thinking outside of the box and being creative and expressing yourself. So, you know. Did you watch any of the craft shows that, or the art shows that were on any of the PBS stations? As a kid? Not so much. No. I don't even know if I was aware of them. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I'm tr you know, I asked you that, and I was trying to think of um, what would have even been on when we were kids. I mean, I'm versus, sure Bob Ross was Well, Bob around. Ross, Obs. Yeah, but I don't, um, I don't think as a, you know, an eight-year-old I was, um, you know, I could have been, but I, I just don't remember being into painting and watching him, so. <laughs> and there was probably some kind of stitching studio or something, but I don't uh -huh. remember, I don't remember there being craft programming at the ready. Not so much. Not so much. Were you, what was your, what was your sort of like creative home at that point? Were you drawing? Were you, I mean, I know you said that you were, you know, making all kinds of kits, but did you have, did you have something that you really sort of loved from, from minute one? Well, I think a lot of it was taking whatever arts and crafts assignment we had in school and just kind of amping it up by 10 degrees. <laughs> So, you know, I had access to all the normal kid stuff, you know, construction paper and crayons and scissors and mm -hmm. white glue and that kind of thing. But I just remember um, being really passionate for several years in elementary school about dioramas. Like, that was one of the best things because you're creating your own imaginary little world and cutting out all of the pieces. And then I'd take a notebook and I'd kind of um, sort of uh, uh, architecture style draw out like a layout of the place that I had created, like a, um, an architectural plan of the map of the, of the house or of the Island I was creating <laughs> or whatever it was. Um, do you think your nerdy. dad could identify with that? Like, do you think that his engineer brain could come in and be like, and he could mm. say like this, I get. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit. I don't know. I do remember there was a one point, um, when we were kids, when my dad decided to pivot and change careers, he had been in construction for a long time. And so he went back to school and during some of the general education courses, he had to take an art history course. And I remember him like kind of being proud to like show me the book. And I remember Aww. pouring through all of the pictures and that kind of thing. So we had that one little point of contact during sort of, you know, his, his re-education going off in a new career direction, which was cool. Did your teachers recognize your talent? Was it your family? Um, 
I think, you know, I think as often times happens in a family, um, uh, when there's more than one sibling, everybody kind of, um, either is assigned or develops into a role. Like my brother was the athlete and, and my sister was the cheerleader and I was kind of the scholar. And I, I think as, as time went on and I expressed more interest in art, like, you know, I was then assigned the role of artist. And so I, it was accepted in the family and that's just kind of what it was. Teachers were definitely encouraging, and I was really fortunate to um, grow up in a place with an excellent public school system, and once we got into junior high, high school age, I lucked into a position within um, sort of an experimental school within our public school system, um, probably would be akin to some of the more focused charter schools that mm-hmm. you see today, but it was all, it was college prep, and so when we were studying, say, um, Greco-Roman history in history class, we were also reading the Iliad in literature class, and then we were making Greco-Roman urns in art class. So it was this very sort of, um, you know, it, it, whenever you were studying one thing in one area, it correlated to all of the other subjects, and it was a really cool way to learn. And I saw the modalities of learning. I mean, yeah, exactly, it sets you up for success. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What uh, What did your portfolio look like when you applied for art school um i what did my portfolio look like when i applied for art school that was such a million years ago vicky i don't Um, mean give me like page one (laughs) a portrait of self but i mean what what were you turning in were you turning in collage were you turning in sketches was it a sort of like a you know i had been doing a lot of um cartooning so I had um, sort of cartooning panels. I had been experimenting in watercolors, and that was really more of an exercise in me because I, I was so green. I was just like finding pretty pictures in magazines and trying to recreate them in watercolor. And I was doing a similar thing with uh, pastels as well. Um, yeah, so hopefully, uh, I mean, thankfully, they were able to uh, kind of look at that and see the potential in it because it was, you know, it's just real, real bad pre-art school stuff. Not that the art school stuff was much better, but. <laughs> well, at what point did you transition into studio art? Um, I, I went to a liberal arts college and my focus was in studio arts. Um, and I did that for um, three years and then kind of had an epiphany and decided I wanted to pivot direction. And I switched it over to art history. Um so it was nice to have an experience in both. I mean, I loved the studio art stuff because you got to play with so many new materials and um, kind of explore that in a in a really n- nurturing environment. Um, but I also love the art history aspect too, man. I mean, there was nothing better than kind of sitting in a dark classroom with all of these amazing slides on the wall and getting to hear all the backstories. So, how do you think that your background in art history informs? your career today? Uh, I think that it has given me, um, it's helped me hone my eye, I think is what it is. And it's helped me sort of see my artwork in the context of um, uh, a bigger, a bigger art world, 
you know. Um, when I graduated from college, I was fortunate enough to um, get an apprenticeship with a woman who was uh, an appraiser of modern and contemporary artwork in Los Angeles. And I ended up um, apprenticing with her for seven years and then working with her for a total of 13. Um, so, you know, that kind of took the took the classroom experience into the real world and allowed me to do a lot of amazing research skills, but also, you know, it gave me um, entree to see collections and, um, you know, museum exhibits that I might not otherwise have, you know, been able to see. Walk us through what appraising a piece of art even involves. You know, it's, I always sort of equate it to um, real estate appraising, because when you're looking to have your house appraised, the real estate appraisal will come in, they'll look at your square footage, they'll look at the condition of your home, and then they'll look to see what comparable homes in your neighborhood have sold for. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar process with artwork. We're looking at, um, we're obviously looking at the the artist and the artist's career. Um, We're looking at the condition of the work. We're looking at the, you know, the scale and the size and the materials. But then really what we're doing is we're taking that information, going into auction records and private sales records and finding works that were comparable that have sold in the recent past. And that kind of gives you a real good indicator of, you know, what price range a piece should be in. So you can't really apply these this practice to more modern art or very current art. Um, well, you know what? It's one of those things. Like there needs to be somewhat of a sales track record. Like Precedence. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do, have you found ever that your sort of you know training as an appraiser has ever given you maybe? an unfriendly eye to your own work, a critic's eye? Oh, you know, that's such a good question. And I think that um, I always, I come back all the time to, um, there was an artist, um, Karita Kent, who was very active in the 60s and 70s. And during part of that time, she was the head of the art department at um, the Immaculate Heart Art College out here in Los Angeles. And um, she's got a list of 10 art department rules and rules are sort of in air quotes (laughs) they were more sort of like touchstones for a creative practice but one of her rules was was not trying to create and analyze your work at the same time and I really had to kind of unlearn some of that because after so many years of doing appraisal work you know it was hard not to go into a gallery or into a museum and look at the work on the walls and start running numbers in my head You know, and you kind of, and then you kind of uh, apply that to your own work, like, okay, I I need to make something and I need to make money off of it. And it's just like, that's kind of the wrong way to go about, you know, creating really. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean that—that's probably every artist's struggle. I I'm need to sure. make money, but that's a terrible way to walk into creativity. It really is, and it's not like I'm free of it a hundred percent. And I also sort of, you know, I kind of walk this line back and forth between doing artwork for myself and then artwork for um, commercial purposes, yeah. and then working with companies that do product development. So, you know, there's a lot of blurry gray lines there. Where what? What blurs towards Robert versus the, mm. the marketplace? Mm. I, I'm not sure I understand the question. I'm so like, sorry. Like, what, what, you know, there's 
you do you do one for you, one for them type of thing. What makes right. it more you? What is there a style? Is there um, you know, is there something that is not mainstream at all that really sort of speaks to your own personal design style? Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think that um, I think there several years ago I, I started um, I picked embroidery back up again. It's something that I had kind of played with off and on for many years and then sort of set aside. And I, I, um, I had a kind of an idea um, moment uh, in which I was looking through some, some vintage um, uh, teaching materials and I came across all of this great anatomical imagery, um, you know, and they were these gorgeous, beautifully colored illustrations, but they were a little disturbing in the subject matter because they were meant as teaching tools. So you saw sort of like cross sections of the human frame and, and so forth. And I kept thinking, my God, you know, those like that, the, the, the nervous system and the arterial system and all of these are so beautiful. They almost look like embroidery. And, and it sort of became sort of a personal pursuit, this idea of trying to figure out how to get this imagery onto fabric and then embellishing it with embroidery and um, and I kind of it was something that I, I did for a while and pursued sat back down brought it back up again mm -hmm. and it's kind of developed into um, uh, a series of uh, workshops that I now teach and um, some embroidery samplers that I've developed and, and sell on my website but it was it was kind of an example of you know kind of a uh, you know, at the time I was picking up the embroidery, it kind of, you know, it hadn't really had a lot of the the popularity and the interest that it has now. Um, and applying it in this really sort of weird way on, on imagery that isn't necessarily palatable to everyone. I keep referring to them as beautifully macabre <laughs> images. But I guess maybe that's an example of of, you know, kind of a little craft corner, this odd intersection of, of craft and, and anatomy that I, I really enjoy and kind and of, you know. that's beautiful. It really is. But it's, but it's got to be a lot. I mean, I, I get it. It's a lot harder to sell, you know, the chambers of a heart <laughs> over right. a cute, you know, retro kitty. Like, yeah. You know, uh -huh. it is. <laughs> I mean, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, it's true. And what's so funny is there was one point where I decided to go back and kind of refresh this line of samplers. And so I, I went back in and I found all of these old botanical illustrations and I went into Photoshop and I kind of created these um, reworked images where I've got like blackberries growing out of the chambers of the heart and flowers coming out of arteries and that kind of thing. And that surprisingly has made them a little bit more palatable. Go figure. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't like a little foliage? Right. You have firmly, you've had your feet firmly in both the arts and craft world. So I'm going to throw this this question that I've I've probably that I love asking people in your position. Sure. For you, what is the difference between art and craft? Oh. God, you know, it's that's that conversation that we had in art school that just hasn't stopped. Um, you know, what is the line between the two? And um, and I think, in a really good way, it continues to get blurrier. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, 
sort of the distinction between the two in part is the thought process and the intent, um, which I know is a really sort of subjective thing to quantify. Um, but it's, you know, it's instead of making a utilitarian object, let's say, you know, uh, a jug or a glass for drinking out of, um, you know, maybe you find an artist like Beatrice Wood who is taking that, but then subverts it and adds characters and she's got a story behind it. And so, um, you know, her intent is not that you're drinking with this every day. Her intent is that you're sitting it on a shelf and you're, you know, it's causing you to think and, um, you know, I, I think that's, so a, that's a, a very imperfect... There's a practicality to craft in your mind? I think there is, to a certain extent, yeah. For you, does art and craft fill the same creative space within you? Uh, in different ways, I think it does. Isn't that interesting? I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. Um, Take a because second. I think, yeah, because I can get really lost in, in a craft project and not be thinking about the process and not necessarily thinking about the the meaning or the purpose. Um, and that's really still fulfilling to me. You know, I'm making something lovely with my hands and I enjoy that part of the creative process. I think on the flip side, maybe more on the art side, I really love brainstorming sort of concept and intent and direction as far as my work is concerned. So, yeah, great question. So maybe the cerebral aspect um, of your creativity leans towards the art side of the spectrum. Mm, that sounds fair. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's the best I can ask for. <laughs> At what point did you said, <laughs> did you take your art, you know, onto onto video were you did you jump on the youtube bandwagon you know back and at its inception or were you like many of us who scrambled who kind of wrote it off as secondary to tv and now are kicking themselves because they waited too long it's, it's so funny i kind of fell into it face first i had um from 2005 to 2010 I had an online shop called Mahar Dry Goods, and it was sort of my first entree into the craft e-commerce world. I had partnered with about 50 different artists, and we made a product line for kids. Um, and in, you know, towards the end of that run, 2008, 2010, um, you know, the the Great Recession hit, and it hit a lot of us that were entrepreneurs and and. Um, uh, that had small businesses, it hit us, it hit us hard and, and I was no exception. And I ended up making the decision to kind of close those doors. And, um, I took what I considered at the time, sort of a survival job. I was working at, um, one of the paper source stores mm -hmm. here in, in Los Angeles. And, um, uh, it was great because I was still around creative um, materials and such a great group of people. And it was through one of my coworkers that I was introduced to um, a digital entertainment company in Santa Monica that had um, had a big content uh, development contract with YouTube and brought me on board as um, a producer. And so I was producing all of their parenting and DIY content. They were all short format videos, you know, sort of three to five minutes long at the time. 
And um, I really loved it. I was able to bring in a lot of um, artists and, and crafters and artisans that I had worked with previously to do some work on camera with me. Um, but it also got to the point where I was developing more and more of the projects myself. Um, and so they approached me with this idea of doing a hybrid position where I was um, producer and talent. So I got to produce my own segments, but I also got to present them on camera. And I think that was sort of how I ended up with this nice library of, uh, you know, videos that I now have on my website was, you know, because of all of my work with them over the years. So they came up with this job for you that that now is what every single creative type needs to do regardless of, oh, you know, produ- yeah, crazy, I mean, right? produce and then communicate it, which I love. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect for me, but I can, I know, you know, part of being often when you're an artist, there's a little bit of introversion. Sure. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to be financially successful if you're not putting yourself out there in media yeah. now. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I can't imagine how difficult that must be for some who aren't all like jazz handy all the time, like you and I are, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it's necessary for everyone, but I, to your point, I think it absolutely, you know, in this digital age of, you know, self-promotion where you kind of have to wear all the hats as an entrepreneur or an artist, um, you know, you, you need an outlet like, you know, video or jumping on Instagram bandwagon or Facebook or usually a combination of all of those. So, yeah. It's just I mean, expected I think, for you to get that next job or that that next uh, licensing deal or that and if that's not your gig, that's not your gig, but yeah. if you do want those you know, it's like the George Clooney thing, the one for them, one for me kind of thing. If you do want to right. be able to continue doing the one for me thing, you you got to yeah. do some of those other things. And yeah. and right now that means they're like, oh, okay, well, like show me show me one of your videos or show me one sure. of your li- like let me see you live. And it's just stuff that you know our our forefathers and foremothers would have never you know. <laughs> can you imagine? Like, Agreed. And you know what, for me, it continues to be a challenge because I think of myself sort of as an extroverted introvert. Um, So I, you know, and I think anybody that's been on camera or done video work before, you look back at those early ones and you just absolutely cringe because you don't really have an awareness of facial expressions. Or control of your voice. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like the the cadence of your voice or the tenor or little ticks you might have and that kind of thing. So um, there are some people that are like, oh, I did this video, but I won't watch it. I'm like, oh, my God, you have to watch it. (laughs) You know, because that's how you sort of improve uh, on your your presentation, your teaching skills. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all a big learning curve. How do you think that having that experience producing and then starring in this video series for YouTube, how, how do you think it prepared you and maybe even gave you a, a leg up uh, once you landed the get on, gig on making it? Um, I think uh, in a very simple way, it made me comfortable around the equipment. Hmm. Um, just having produced other people before, I, I know it's it's an odd experience to sit there and have to look into the dark center of a lens and have a conversation like you're talking to your best friend. Um, 
so I think I think that was helpful. Um, and then uh, I think also, um, you know, doing the video series that or the video work that I've done over the years where I've worked in so many different mediums, um, it kind of, you know, it gave me a comfort level with sort of diving into a project that I had never done before or working with a material that I may know about, but maybe I've never laid hands on before, you know? So it kind of was a, it was a broad, uh, a broad preparatory (laughs) process. Do you, could you feel, were there other contestants that maybe didn't have that experience could you feel was there any sense of relief by just not having to jump there it seems like there would have had been so many other things to focus on and you you didn't have to focus about worrying about how do i you know produce content and then look sure. on camera could you could right. you tell that about your contestants or was it not well, it was interesting because I think going into it, they we all met one another in advance of filming. Um, we were actually able to spend about a week and a half together. Really? And get to know one another. We were not allowed to have conversations, though, about our areas of specialization or what we did for work. So it kind of put us all on this very interesting sort of even playing field where, you know, by the end of that period of time, we knew about each other's families and what pets we had and what food we liked to eat. But it wasn't until we got in the barn and started working that we were aware, oh, you're a woodworker or, oh, your specialization is in, you know, sewing or paper craft or that sort of thing. So I don't think there was any um, awareness of sort of a leg up in that sort of advance period. Um you know, I think as the show progressed, you could tell who was a little bit more gregarious and who was a little bit more comfortable, you know, in sort of the interview portions of of the show, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think they tried to keep it pretty even. Did that period of time when you couldn't talk about what you did, did that like shine a mirror at all on on the value you place or the prominence that what you do places and, and how you define yourself? I may be projecting here. P.S. Um, might be projecting a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I so don't you, think that so I thought you were, about it. You that were deeply. super comfortable yeah. just not talking about this huge no, aspect it of was, yourself. No, it was odd, but we were also in a very surreal environment where we were being sequestered away from our families with a new group of people. Um, but it was almost like going to summer camp where you end up in this cabin full of cabin mates that, you know, you don't have anything to do, but get to know them better. You know, you play cards and you go out for dinner and, um, and it was actually really lovely because we kind of got to know each other as humans before we got into the barn and, you know, we're interacting sort of as creative competitors, you know, that's such a smart decision by the the producers and, 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 I don't know her at all, but my guess would be that uh, Amy Poehler probably pushed that. And the only reason that I say that is that that takes the any sort of front that might be put up by your first exposure to someone being competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it quells that. And and at the beginning, the very beginning of casting for, for the show, it was originally planned to be a very different show than it, than it was. And, and um, 
I was talking to one of the casting agents. There was an Austin casting agent, and mm-hmm. um, she ended up, you know, living really close to me. So we went and grabbed a drink or whatever. And and originally, they weren't looking for professional crafters they were looking for you know hobbyists and so Mm -hmm. she was talking to me and we talked about maybe being a judge or something we were just kind of she really just wanted to pick my brain to see who she should be auditioning and one of the things when she mentioned you know would you ever be interested and you know if there was some kind of judging role I you know expressed to her that I would never you know criticize another person's creativity if there was a mentor position i'd love that blah 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 blah. and she said no this is really important amy puller's big thing is that this is a feel-good show this is Mm -hmm. not this is not supposed to to be you know the death match and so (laughs) it's it seemed it which which you know i mean there was a there was a craft show like that before where and and Mm -hmm. that's something and for whatever reason you know i've spent 15 years pitching craft television that is always where producers want to go is you know putting two people at each other's throats to make good television and that is not the foundation of which a craft community lays and so it never really worked yeah and because a different direction was taken with this show i i I really believe that that's why it did was that your experience was that was that philosophy your experience being yeah i I mean i think that there were a lot of reasons that it ended up working in this instance i mean we had the sort of epiphany of reality television that is the great british baking show i remember the first time i saw it it was revelatory because contestants were collegial and they were kind to one another and they shared materials and the judges gave constructive criticism and when you got kicked off you got kicked off with hugs and i was like oh this is so totally my jam. Like, <laughs> I just, I loved it so much because it was sort of in keeping with what you just described, sort of that creative sense of community. Um, and so when it was presented to me um, uh, early on as, you know, they wanted to do a crafting version of that, that's really the only reason I threw my hat in the ring. That and the fact that Amy and Nick were associated with it. And I'm such a huge fan of, like, Amy Poehler Smart Girls and 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 Nick Offerman's Woodshop yeah. here in East Los Angeles, you know. So I knew that these were, like, good people that had good hearts, and I couldn't imagine making that kind of reality television, which is basically all we had seen, you know, chopped, you know, cutthroat kitchen, all of those where it's really so intensely about pitting you against your competitors. Um, So I think, you know, like I described that process of getting to know the other contestants up front, I'm sure that she was involved in that. And it really helped set this lovely tone um, just for our relationships with one another throughout the competition um, where, you know, we realize, yeah, there is a competition and yes, there is a big prize at the end of it. But I think... um, you know, we also all went into it kind of with enough sense of ourselves to know that um, that's just one part of of the reward for being a part of a show on a platform like this is because, you know, we're, we're aware that we're being mic'd all day long and we're aware that we're being on camera all day long and how you interact with one another and how you treat one another is, you know, really important. And um, I just, I love that they valued that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, the only other U.S. based show that I've ever seen that had that really focused on you know not being jerks to each other was Face Off um, on Sci Fi Network. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's a. I never did. Oh, no, it's a. It was a great show. It was a Sci Fi makeup competition show. Ah, okay. But it was really you know because it was a bunch of artists and not. It you know it was a bunch of art school kids. They just. They were all in. They were all yeah. in and helped each other. And I've just found it so refreshing. Yeah. And um, and I'm I'm hoping that with shows like making it and and face off that that's sort of the direction that we're going in. Just a little you bit. You and me both. Kinder, yes, exactly. There's <laughs> enough unkindness. Hundred percent. Yeah. Did you did you throw your hat in at the beginning when they were when they were originally just looking for hobbyists, or did you did you come on when they because they they turned it into they wanted very accomplished, um, you know, at least partially professional, maybe not full time for everybody on the show, but they they completely changed what the intent of the show or what the format rather was. To be honest, I was never aware that that pivot took place. Um, I mean, I, in conversations with the casting director that I interacted with during the, the course of, um, you know, my additions and so forth leading up to the show, um, my understanding was always that they were looking for people who would never otherwise really want to be on television. They weren't looking for, you know, big personalities and, and that sort of thing. Um, but really people that were much more focused on their artwork. So if there was that other direction, it was probably before I, I came on board. But I did apply through the casting website like so many other people did and just, you know, filled in that million million that question questionnaires. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, not only was it a lengthy written application, but then um, multiple rounds of photo submissions, you know, and when <laughs> when somebody comes back to you and are like, thank you so much for everything you submitted. Now we need 30 more photographs of different projects. I'm like, holy. Yeah. <laughs> it was, was a really... long, I mean, it took a year at least. It was. I applied in March and did not get the green light until two weeks before filming started in August. So yeah, it was a really long process. <laughs> what, um, what was, what did a day look like? Obviously folks you know, see the episode and sure. go make it and, you know, edit, 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 done. But what what did an actual episode, episode's worth of taping look like? Um, it was actually, each episode was about three days in length to film. Um, so, uh, you know, our call time was usually around seven in the morning. We'd meet in the lobby and jump in the van and head, head over to set. Were you all um, staying together? You were, you were all staying at the same place together? We were, okay. yeah. And then, you know, they'd rotate us through um, hair, makeup, wardrobe, and breakfast. And uh, then we would be taken on set and we would jump into whatever the, the challenge was for the day. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty rigorous schedule just because they did two episodes a week. And then, um, you know, on the seventh day <laughs> we were supposed to rest, but that didn't always happen. Um, 
So uh, it, it, we started joking at a certain point that it really wasn't who was the most talented. It was just really who could get up in the morning, get in the van. That's <laughs> <Yes>, outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a certain level of um, t- tenacity and endurance that I don't think any of us were uh, completely prepared for. Um, so, yeah. Were you expected to do press items as well? Little, you know, interstitials or they video ads? Had a, or? Just in-house. Um, so, like with their, um, you know, their social media producer and whatnot, they would have us do little um, um, little bits that they would, you know, then hope to sort of run on their social channels kind of thing. But it it did not extend beyond sort of the, the NBC family at that point, no. What? I'm trying to envision that show without contestants that didn't have their hands in multiple areas of expertise. And I I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the breadth of some of the things that you put together for the show. Sure. You did did a puppet theater, you Mm. know, so, so let's call that paper craft. I know there's some other aspect of it. Um, You know, a toy fort, but I like, that's a ridiculous that I'm even using the word toy because it was, it was like, it looked like it was steel and beam. I mean, Nick Offerman could hang from it and survive. <laughs> well, it was what it was is it was a fort combined with a correlating toy. So it was a sort of a two part a two part project. Yeah, but it, I know. But, but woodworking. But I just, I just, but still, like just even putting the word, like I mean, it was there was some there was some engineering involved in that. Thank you. I was real I was real proud of that one. I mean, I where is this coming from is my point. Like we've talked about, you know, you being scholarly and, you know, gazing at beautiful art forever. We've talked about your love for <laughs> we've talked about your love for embroidery. We've talked about painting. <laughs> What, I mean, do you weld? Like, what else do I need I, to know? I don't, but God, I'd love to. Um, you know, I think, again, it's it. Uh, part of it harkens back to being able to do um, the video work that I've done, where, you know, the, the company I worked with had a specific audience. I needed to sort of tailor the... the um, uh, the complexity of the projects to that audience so that they would be successful in, in doing them. But it was everything from, you know, soap making to woodworking. And so I had kind of had my hand in a lot of those different materials. And it was so interesting because I think, you know, in art school, you're always encouraged to, at least when I was in art school, you were encouraged to find an area of specialization. You needed to have a focus to your major. You were a, you were a painter, you were a sculptor, you were a printmaker. Yeah. And I remember my head just spinning because, you know, I'd go into the art department, I'm like a kid in a candy store, and I want to play with the pottery wheel, and I want to play with the printing press, and I want to play with the woodworking equipment. Um, And so, it kind of was this process that took me many years to kind of feel comfortable with the idea of being a generalist. You know, like, I don't have that strong core area of specialization. Um, uh, Is that like a master of none kind of? A little bit, yeah. But that was what was so brilliant about the video work is it embraced that like that was seen as an asset you know being able to jump from you know this week we're doing (laughs) this week we're doing you're making your own scented nail polish (laughs) to the next week where you're replicating these beautiful like paper flowers from the 40s like it just (laughs) just it allowed me to jump around with a little bit of adeptness that um i think has served me well yeah fascinating and fun yeah, it just seems so 
much more fun to be able to explore every aspect of your creative self. But I tell you, I still have those moments where I wish like, oh, I wish that I was just a ceramicist and I, I delve deep and I had a signature style and like that was my thing. Oh, I hear you. You know, I, I really I, do I, now. Yeah, I feel like those people, like you know, because when someone has a project in their head and they're like, "Who who does beautiful ceramics?" They think of that one person. Um, and also, just and and I fantasize about this. Just you have this one job. Then not saying that not saying yeah. that you would only do you know you're clocking in, but you're always making this. You know, sometimes I'm I'm so all over the place, not yeah. scattery, but I just have my hands in so many things. Sometimes I fantasize about, what if I just did this? But I think I would hate it. I think I would hate it. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I vacillate. <laughs> I mean, I think that's part of it. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think I'm probably doing what I'm supposed to be doing. What? Uh, what what's next what's next for robert what do you what did you i mean do you feel like there's more that you want to s- explore within the context of what you're doing now between your studio workshops and your art and your videos or or is there something beyond that oh that's such a good question and i've tried really hard sort of um, to spend a lot of time thinking about how do how do I want to leverage this little fifteen minutes of being on a platform like NBC? Like, how do I want to take this experience and this opportunity and you know leverage it to to my benefit? Um, and I mean that in a very positive way. Like, you know, do I want to do I want to pitch a book? Do I want to try and pitch a new video series? Do I want to try and segue this into a new full time job? And I've thought about all of those. We. <laughs> really seriously. Um, and I think, you know, at this stage, we're, um, we're about a month and a half out from the, from the finale of the show. And I'm still grappling with a lot of that. I'm, I've had some fun opportunities come my way. Um, I'm talking to some folks about doing some, some video work that has got me really excited. And so I kind of have, um, you know, my fingers crossed that, that that'll come through, but I also kind of want to be smart about the decisions I make and, you know, figure out the best way to kind of push it forward. And that was probably a real non-answer to your question. But. I don't think it, no, I don't think it was at all. And I think, you know, you've trusted your instincts this far. You should continue yeah. to lean into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those it's one of those tricky things like I feel real fortunate to be like a guy in my 40s that's kind of, you know, working in the craft industry for a living like um but I also um know how real the hustle is and um you know, you're either swimming in it or you're really struggling to find the next opportunity or the next gig or to reinvent it yourself or create it yourself. And I want to be able to retire someday. So, um, yeah. I'm sorry, so, what, what, what is that word you just used? Oh, I know, right? Do you think it'll ever happen? <laughs> I, I mean, I know I'm also always going to be creative and working, but I also... It would be know, nice to not have to. I get, I yeah, get what you're saying. And yeah. And yeah, I mean... But I, think I that's fully also, believe that if you focus on what you want, it'll happen. And so, yeah. you know. It, and I I feel real fortunate in that I feel like that has, um, you know, that has really happened for me in so many ways. I've had some really great successes by kind of, you know, following my strengths and my abilities and playing into those. So, um, yeah. 
hopefully that will continue. <laughs> well, I am going to be watching from the sidelines and rooting oh, you on. I thank love your you. Work. I appreciate and, that. Um, it was such a pleasure having you here. Oh, thanks, Vicki. It was such a nice conversation. I appreciate you having me. For more information on Robert Maher, go to his show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. All right, now it is time for a newish segment brought to you by our friends over at Penguin Random House Audio called What I'm Crafting To. So this is what I'm watching or listening to while I'm working, while my hands are busy at work during the week. So first off, I watched a movie this week that I really liked. My husband used to be a movie critic and so we still for some reason have the benefit of getting screeners in the mail which is such a treat and one of those screeners was a star is born with Ms. Lady Gaga um, and Bradley Cooper of course and so I got to watch that while I was working away on a deadline and I just I really enjoyed it I I went in you know not really knowing what to expect like obviously both of the stars are talented, but um, it really kind of exceeded my expectations. I really enjoyed that. So it's in theaters now. Check it out if you are so inclined. It is officially after Thanksgiving now, and so that means Christmas music is finally okay. Are you listening to me, stores who have been playing it since June? Now it's okay. So that means that I hit play on the alternative Christmas playlist that I have compiled over the years on Spotify. If you like to uh, to do your holidays by the tunes of everyone from the Kinks and the Ramones to Dolly Parton and the Brian Setzer Orchestra, then you might enjoy this list. So I will put a link to it um, also on the show notes page if you're interested, or you can also just probably search Alternative Christmas and uh, my name on Spotify and find it that way as well. All right, let's talk audiobooks. So I am almost finished with Michelle Obama's book, The Coming. And I have spent hours upon hours this week listening to it as I have been working away on various projects. And I just, you know, I mean, what's there to say? She's an impressive woman, hands down. She is she is how she presents herself. Um, her way of writing is very cerebral, but I just have also found it very candid and have really appreciated hearing about what it was like for her, her experience as a girl, then woman of color, a an attorney, a first lady, and also, you know, most importantly, a mother, but not only a mother, but a mother who has parented in the most unlikely of circumstances of living in a White House amongst the country and the world and under the eyes of all and um, I'm just really enjoying it. So if you are interested in um, in Michelle Obama and her story, please check out Becoming and you can find that wherever you get your audiobooks or of course at tryaudiobooks.com. I would love to hear what you're crafting too. Um, I'm always looking for suggestions, whether it is a podcast or a new album or a movie or a TV show. Please just go ahead and let me know. You can either comment on our show notes page or just find me on Facebook, which is at Vicki Health. So go ahead and post those suggestions there. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And also, if you take a moment just to click the little stars to review it um, and rate it on Apple Podcasts, it really helps all of the peoples out there find us. Music for this podcast is provided by Explosions in the Sky. 
Craftish is a Campbell production. It is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Oh, and if you know a knitter or crocheter out there, please have them check out my knitting and crochet subscription box business. It is called Yarnier, and I have so many lovely curated items that are ready to be delivered to your happy home, so check that out at yarnier.com. All right, next week, check your feed for another new episode. This one will be with knitting book author Wendy Bernard. Until then, take a little time for yourself to fill that creative cup, breathe in, crack